Hello and welcome to episode 5 of the Biology of Superheroes podcast. I'm your host, Shane Campbell-Staten. This week's episode comes to you from the 41st Annual International Wildlife Film Festival in Missoula, Montana. Arian and I were fortunate enough to meet up in Missoula and record this episode in front of a live audience in the beautiful and historic Roxy Theater. In this episode, we sit down with Dr. Doug Emlin, who's a professor of biological sciences at the University of Montana and author of Animal Weapons, The Evolution of Battle, which was published back in 2015. We discuss weapons across the comic book multiverse, how they have evolved, and what they can tell us about the lives of the characters that possess them. So without further ado, the Biology of Superheroes podcast starts now. So welcome, you guys. This is the first live recording of the Biology of Superheroes podcast that we've done. Uh, so my name is Shane Campbell-Staten. Uh, I am a National Science Foundation postdoctoral fellow. Uh, right now, I'm splitting my time between University of Illinois and right here at University of Montana, working with uh, the Chevron Lab. Um, and this has been um, a project that's been a few years in the making. This started as a small course that I taught at uh, Harvard University, and um, eventually I ended up pairing up with my partner in crime here, Arian Darby, um, to, uh, to bring you this podcast. Uh, Arian, why don't you introduce yourself to the folks? Yeah, hey guys, my name's Arian Darby. Um, is there anybody in the room that's actually not like super deep into science? Yes! These are, okay, there's a few of my people out here. So I have no scientific background. Uh, in my undergrad studies, when I met Shane at the University of Rochester, I was studying communications and marketing and that path. And that led me down to eventually kind of falling into the role of a marketing uh, manager in the entertainment field. So currently I work for Warner Brothers and I've primarily worked in the division that focuses on video games, but has actually involved a bunch of IP from across the science and kind of comic book world. So everything from Lord of the Rings to Harry Potter to Marvel to DC uh, and so much more have come across my way. Uh, and so that's kind of where we've combined forces and teamed up in a comic book kind of way where he brings the science, I bring the sci-fi and hopefully you guys have a lot of fun. Yeah. So, you know, if you guys are you know, interested in hearing more about the podcast, listening to a few episodes, you guys can follow us on Twitter at SuperBioPodcast. You can find us on iTunes, Rate us, help us get up in the science charts. You know, we're super excited to get this out to as many people as possible. We have a Facebook page. You can follow us at uh, the Biology of Superheroes podcast uh, on, on Facebook. So for this episode, we have the man himself, Dr. Doug Emlin, uh, representing from University of Montana. Um, so Doug, tell us a little bit about what it is that you do. I got my Grizz colors on. I'm a biology professor here at the university and my research focuses on animal weapons and in particular, really, really big, exaggerated, sort of extreme animal weapons. And so I think you'll see it's relevant for some of the things that we're gonna talk about today. But, um, but mostly we study the evolution of horns and beetles. And then lately we've been spiraling out from that and looking at patterns in the evolution of weapons in general, antlers, cl claws, tusks, horns, 
and then really spiraling out and starting to look at parallels between arms races and animal weapons and arms races and military technologies. And it's turned out that there's quite a few parallels there too. So it's a snapshot. So how did you get into doing what you do? How did you become a biologist? I'm a little bit unusual in that way because I was raised in the field, so to speak. So my dad is a biologist, retired now, and my grandfather was a biologist. They both studied animal behavior and primarily focused on birds. I was the rebel. I focused on beetles. You know, they both start with a B, but they're a little bit different. It's like Uh, outside, but pressed right up against the box. (laughs) No, I honestly thought it was normal to grow up with a whole bunch of dead indigo buntings in the freezer. It was like the ice cream was on one side and the dead birds waiting genetic analysis were on the other side. No, but I fell in love with biology and I fell in love with sort of the detective work process of trying to answer difficult questions. The kinds of problems where you really had to outthink them and you had to sort of figure out how to ask your questions in the right way. I was absolutely utterly in love with that sort of way of pursuing knowledge from, from very early on. And I was in love with crazy places like the tropics, and I was really attracted to the insects because there's so much about them that we just don't know. So I, I basically went to the insects, started pulling through drawers, and tried to find the craziest, most bizarre, sort of improbable animals I could, and that was the beetles with these big horns sticking off of their bodies. And I've been stuck on that pretty much ever since. Yeah, oh man, from, <laughs> so. from beetles all the way to like military weapons. Well, that was a surprise, but yes. <laughs> yeah, that's amazing. <laughs> so, um, yeah. Yeah, so today we are going to talk about the evolution of battle across the comic book multiverse. So, Arian, what do you think, man? Fights. Yeah, fights. It's a a big deal. Um, Much like Doug's kind of early fascination with extreme weapons and kind of encountering these creatures in the natural world that exhibit those tendencies, uh, the comic book world is very much about kind of this fictional representation of extreme weapons because you encounter a lot of these superheroes or supervillains that have a vast array of different abilities and powers that are just kind of really beyond the scale of what's typically expected in normal humans uh, because oftentimes they're coming from different planets or uh, they're mutated and affected from different means or exposure to different situations. Uh, And so as as such, we're kind of encountering similar worlds in a sense where we're exploring sort of those what-if scenarios too, or how did this happen? How did this come to be? Uh, And so as we move forward through the presentation today, we're gonna talk about a couple different characters in the comic book world and a couple different scenarios and draw some parallels between uh, those characters and what we see in the natural world and um, you know, kind of find some unusual but uh, and also unexpected connections, I think. Do you have a favorite sort of like superhero weapon Oh gosh, like a favorite superhero weapon. Yeah. Um, this is going to take like half an hour. Yeah, it's, it, that's like a laundry list question. <laughs> I've always been fascinated by like the, the telekinetic characters. Okay. Um, but we're going to be talking about a couple characters here that are pretty interesting too. And I think the first one's a Shapeshifter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So actually, let's go ahead and dive right in. So <clears throat> the first character up on the block is Mystique, right? So now typically when we think about you know, weapons, we think about sort of major offensive weapons, you know, things like claws and, um, you know, laser beams and tusks and horns and all this sort of stuff. Yeah. But, you know, coloration, right, can actually be quite useful, right, as a weapon. And I think Mystique is actually, you know, she's a pretty good representation of this, right? So Mystique is, you know, a pretty intense shapeshifter. I mean, I wouldn't call her like overly powerful necessarily right in terms of a straight-up battle right she's never the type of character that you'd kind of 
find on the front lines leading the charge, but she's always an infiltrator and someone that's sneaking behind enemy lines. Um, she first appeared in a comic book back in the 1970s, a Miss Marvel issue, uh, and part of what was going on in that was that, number one, uh, she was introduced as uh, a form that actually wasn't her natural form. She had already kind of shape-shifted, and she was spying on this character, Miss Marvel, basically trying to get some information about her to take her down. But then secondarily, um, if anybody's kind of familiar with the comic book world and in the Avengers world in particular, uh, she was on this mission to infiltrate S.H.I.E.L.D., uh, which is kind of this government organization that works with the Avengers, uh, to basically break in and steal some sensitive data about the Avengers themselves and kind of take that top secret information uh, back to her group. So she essentially infiltrated the headquarters of S.H.I.E.L.D., shapeshifted her way to make sure that she kind of basically resembled the director of S.H.I.E.L.D., Nick Fury, if that's ringing a bell. Uh, he's kind of portrayed by um, Samuel L. Jackson yep. is the current Nick Fury in the comic book theatrical world. Uh, but she took on the identity of Nick Fury and basically snuck her way past the defenses of uh, S.H.I.E.L.D. headquarters to get that information. Uh, and so ever since, she's kind of been portrayed in the comic books as well as a couple of different films. Uh, she's been represented by two different actresses, Rebecca Romaine and Jennifer Lawrence, uh, throughout a couple of different trilogies now. Um, but she's always been big on shape-shifting, uh, highly agile, combat-trained, uh, but essentially the person that kind of sneaks behind enemy lines and does things on the covert end. Yeah, so a lot of her power lies in her ability to like, essentially just be an assassin, assassin right? Stealth Absolutely. mode. Uh, she, she sneaks in on the, on the down low and gets stuff done. Uh, so why don't we introduce you to a character? So here's a clip from, um, uh, this is X-Men uh, The Last Stand. Uh, so let's, let's see uh, Mystique in action here. The clip that we play here is an interrogation scene um, where the government is interrogating Mystique, and this plays out in X-Men The Last Stand uh, from 2006. So Aaron, can you give us a little bit of background about what's happening in this movie? Yeah, so basically anyone that has mutant abilities is being forced by the government to register uh, and basically fall in line with what is called the Mutant Registration Act. And as part of that, the government is even taking the step further to uh, essentially harvest and manifest a, what they would call a cure uh, to uh, basically force mutants that are on the registered list to give up their abilities um, and become regular humans again. Mm. You know, it's kind of a morality issue in the mutant world, and that takes us to the scene where we get involved with... Um, uh, basically, the president and his cabinet of advisors uh, were working with Homeland Security to try and track down Magneto. And at this but, point, um, Beast, right, Henry McCoy, you know, who's a member of the X-Men or maybe a former member of the X-Men at this point, um, is actually he holds a position, a government position. He's the secretary of mutant affairs. Right. Right. Yeah. Uh, so he's actually in the inner workings of the human government. Uh, and I think. Uh, as kind of attributable to Beast's character throughout the years, he's always um, working to find common ground with everyone uh, for a peaceful coexistence. On principle, I can't negotiate with these people. I thought that's why you appointed me, sir. Yes, it is. And so he's really got the ear of the president and a lot of the high executive leadership within the cabinet, and they are going over a briefing from Homeland Security 
who was actually trying to track down the whereabouts of Magneto. But instead, as uh, luck would have it, they actually kind of ran into one of his top lieutenants, Mystique. We picked her up, breaking to the FDA of all places. You know who she's been imitating? Secretary Trask here. Yes, sir. She can't do that. Not anymore, she can't. We got her. You think your prisons can hold her? We have some new prisons, Hank. We'll keep them mobile. Be a step ahead this time. And she was caught breaking and entering into all places the FDA. And I <laughs> honestly don't quite remember why. Yeah. <laughs> Just hearing this clip again made me think, what was she doing in the FDA? <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. what, what, what is going on in the FDA organization that she is uh, kind of breaking into? Yeah. But Well, I think uh, maybe it's can... about the, the actual drug that they're engineering to like strip people of their powers. I imagine that would probably have to go through the FDA. See, that's why... You're the scientist. I was like, <laughs> is she hungry? <laughs> yeah. And just very well mentioned the fact that they were developing a new drug to essentially cure and or depending on the side of the morality spectrum that you reside on, eliminate the genetic factor of mutation uh, that's kind of popping up in these people. So, yeah, that would make perfect sense. She broke into that to try and track down that drug to prevent it from being distributed broadly and being kind of forced through the government to kind of, you know, force it on the mutant population. So, yeah. So then what do we, what do we see play out like in the, in the actual interrogation? Yeah. I mean, in the actual interrogation, uh, you know, it's kind of like a, a typical movie interrogation where you have the government entity on one side feeling cocksure that they've got the prey and they're, you know, kind of captured inmate exactly where they want her but Mystique is definitely cut from a different cloth. Absolutely. Raven, I asked you a question. I don't answer to my slave name. Raven Darkholm, that's your real name, isn't it? Or has he convinced you you don't have a family anymore? My family tried to kill me, you pathetic meat sack. Okay, then Mystique, where is he? In here with us I don't want to play games with you I want answers you don't want to play games with me you are gonna stop this tell me where is Magneto yeah so we see you know she's sort of playing these mind games with the interrogator you know she's turning into uh, turning into Magneto and taunting him and then turns into the actual interrogator and is taunting him yeah, and sort of throws everybody off their guard right before she jumps up on the table and kicks all kinds of butt. All right. So Mystique don't play around. Um, so when I'm thinking about Mystique right, as a biologist, like obviously the thing that comes to my mind is, is coloration. Um, so first of all, when we see Mystique in her like natural form, she's just super, super bright blue with these sort of iridescent, um, scales, these like microstructures yeah, and different parts of her body that are concealing conveniently certain parts of her body. And, <laughs> you know, and this to me, like this really stands out, obviously, especially for a, um, especially for a character where, like her major mode or her major form of power is is concealment to be so ostentatious right and obviously this sort of brings to my mind you know blue coloration in the natural world as a whole all right so 
you know, we see that the color blue is co-opted across the entire tree of life, essentially, like everywhere from, you know, birds to insects, you know, to humans to, uh, you know, to other primates. You know, this blue coloration is, you know, is pretty widely spread. But what's interesting about the color blue itself is that it's actually not a pigment. Well, most animals can't produce this like by um, by pigment, like the way that our you know, our skin is, is colored, right? They, like that's a pigment-based color. But for the color blue, typically how it's expressed is through uh, specific microstructures, right? So they're, you know, at the nanoscale, there are microscopic variations on feathers or on a carapace that absorb light and then they only reflect back blue. So it's, a, it's this structure of this, these nanostructures that actually give us the color blue. And this is used for a lot of different reasons across the animal kingdom for um, for uh, sexual selection, uh, for um, aposematism, right? So saying like, I'm really dangerous, don't mess with me, this is my bright color, you know what's up. And I'd say in, probably in the case of Mystique, yeah, that's probably a, you know, a, a, a pretty true signal to, to who she is. Um, but then as she changes these color, as she shapeshifts, as Mystique shapeshifts, you can see her sort of lift up these microstructures to uncover, you know, the pigment and shape of whoever it is that she's mimicking. Now, this to me was extremely interesting because it reminds me again of extreme examples in the natural world. The most extreme of these examples, I would say, to my mind, is probably in the cephalopods. Cephalopods are the group of mollusks that include the squids, cuttlefish, and octopuses. All right, so. Obviously, coloration in general is used for a lot of different things like crypsis and, um, you know, and escape tactics and things like that. But, you know, cephalopods really take this to the next level in terms of being able to actively manipulate their color and texture. So here's just one example of the cephalopod as a master manipulator. Here I play some video footage that was shot by Dr. Roger Hanlon, who is a senior scientist at the Marine Biological Laboratory. The footage was taken during a dive where he encounters an incredibly camouflaged octopus. Now, unfortunately, there isn't any audio from this clip to really give you an idea of what's happening, but we will post the video on our Facebook page if you're interested in seeing the extreme camouflage and shape-shifting ability of the octopus in action. In the meantime, I did find some audio from a TEDx talk that Dr. Hanlon gives on dynamic octopus camouflage. So here's a short clip of him explaining what's happening in this video. But it leads us on to another impressionistic image of this uh, boring underwater scene where there's just this fluffy rock and there's a fish swimming in the scene and there's nothing happening until now. And now you see that we had this wonderfully camouflaged octopus that is now brilliantly white, you can't miss it, inks in the face and swims away. Now it's going to do the next trick, which is to spread its web and turn on this bright white coloration and high contrast pattern so that it's giving you a strong, unambiguous signal. Well, let's play this backwards and see what's happening. Smooth white skin, a ring around the eye, that's five million pigment organs called chromatophores being innervated from the brain. It's like electric skin and another 20 million being recruited to give the pattern and now I draw your attention to the smooth outline of the body and it goes three-dimensional so those are some pretty good goosebumps right there and the idea is the animal now is 
pretty hard to see even though you know where it is. So here's beginning and here's after. How did they do it and why? Well, this animal happened to look at this part of the algae and to more or less resemble it in the pattern, the posture, the intensity, the color, and even that three-dimensional texture. Now, that animal can go over here to this part of the coral reef. You can go anywhere and camouflage in seven-tenths of a second. So this guy's got skills, right? It's, <laughs> it took me a while when I was first looking at this. I was like, why, why are we looking at a plant? This is, you know, maybe that's interesting. You know, but not only are they able to like, really finely you know, blend in, you know, but they're, very, they're able to match both the sort of color and texture of, of their surroundings. Now, to match the color, they actually they have these really interesting structures. These are called chromatophores, right? So uh, underneath the skin, they have... You know, these specialized structures that are full of, of pigment and uh, small muscles sort of close and expand those pigment sacs in order to reveal uh, the coloration inside. And this ranges from you know, yellow to brown uh, to reds, uh, even blacks. And not only that, but underneath this layer of chromatophores is another layer of cells um, called iridophores that, uh, that have these uh, microstructures like through proteins and other microstructures that reflect the greens and blues. So by manipulating these chromatophores and the underlying iridophores, they're actually able to manipulate the entire the spectrum of, of the rainbow, which I think is absolutely fascinating. And of course, thinking about Mystique, you know, if she's going to go through this process of, you know, of, you know, mimicking individuals from diverse, you know, races and, you know, not only mimicking their skin tone, but mimicking their clothes, like having access to this diverse array of colors is going to be really useful. But not only are cephalopods able to ma manipulate color, but they're also able to manipulate the actual texture of their skin. Yeah, so they have you know, these specialized um, structures called papillae you know, that you know, they can use uh, using a combination of, um, of, muscul of uh, musculature and uh, hydrostatic mechanisms, they can uh, make themselves more rigid or more smooth to even further help them blend into their surroundings. So when we're thinking about mystique, right, having access to you know, these mechanisms that we know work in the natural world, I think would go a really long way in helping her to manipulate, you know, color, texture, mimic the wrinkles of an individual, you know, even mimic like the folds in their clothing by having some of these, these underlying mechanisms. So given that, you know, when we're talking about color, like how does this actually evolve? Like how, do, how does color evolve as a weapon? <laughs> as a weapon. I don't know, I was starting to think of the parallels here. I have to admit, when, when they asked me to join on this, I, I didn't know what to expect because <laughs> I watch a lot of these things with my kids. We enjoy the Marvel Universe, but I hadn't really watched them through the lens as a biologist. It's like you go home and you're a dad, you go to work, you're a biologist. But actually, there really are a ton of parallels here. And so one of them, I'm impressed at how similar the, the sort of skin level, color level, pigment level mechanisms are. But there's a bunch of different contexts, and you hit on another one with Mystique that I hadn't seen until sitting here today, but the sneaky factor. Mm, yeah. so, so quick, over, there's a couple different contexts where animals would benefit by blending really well with their backgrounds. And yes, you could interpret that as a weapon, either offensive or defensive. A defensive weapon in the case of animals that are prey, 
because for obvious sort of intuitive reasons, you do well if you can blend really well with your background. And you see a variety of animals that, that are astonishingly good at mimicking the backgrounds that they sit against. And, and sometimes it involves texture, just like you're talking about with Mystique. A lot of times it involves the color. And often it involves the behavior. So if I can just give one yeah. sort of on-the-fly example. Yeah. I remember one time when I was a grad student working in Panama, and, and I was down there studying beetles, but we'd find all these other cool insects too. They'd come into the lights at night, and I would try to grab them and set them on a desk and try to sketch them or photograph them. And, and one day, this, this katydid flew in that was a stunning mimic of a leaf. I mean, really incredible mimic of the leaf. You could see the veins. You could see little damaged spots on it where it looked like insects had been chewing on the leaves. Wow. And I set, this was gorgeous, and I set this insect down on the table getting ready to sketch it. And it started walking across the table, and it didn't just walk. It went like this. It sort of like lurched across the table, and mm -hmm. you're like, oh my god, what is wrong with this thing? And yeah. it's just like hurling itself to the side and then flipping back. It looked absolutely ridiculous on the table. You put it on a plant, it's gone. Because leaves flutter in the wind. And so this animal had a behavior that went with the color so that when it was on a plant, it disappeared. It actually behaved like a leaf in addition mm. to looking like it. So one context for the weapons would be defensive. You hide really well with your background. But the other is an attack weapon. You find a variety of ambush predators that benefit from looking really <coughs> close to their background because they can hide and the prey that come by them don't recognize them as a predator. And so there's cases we call it aggressive mimicry, but you're mimicking a background or a substrate as a way to hide so that you can grab prey. There's eyelash vipers and there's a bunch of other examples mm. like that. Praying mantids very often look like flowers in the backgrounds that they'll sit on. And then when pollinator insects come in, they, they can reach out and grab them. Mm. But I want to mention one other twist, if yeah. you let me go on this. Oh, yeah, keep going. Because you mentioned the sneaking factor, too. Yeah. So many of the animal systems that I'm used to working on with these really big, elaborate, expensive weapons have cheaters. They have sneaks in the system, too. Mm -hmm. So the weapons tend to be really expensive and really difficult to produce, and only the best-conditioned individuals can afford to do it. So what do the rest of the, the males do in these populations? They break the rules and they cheat. And so you find sneaky individuals in all of these different species, sort of breaking the rules and infiltrating in ways. They're not going to fight a one-on fair battle out in the open. They find another way around, break the rules, and get in. So Mystique's kind of putting together pieces of all of this, right? Yeah. She could be the attacker. She could be hiding. And she's definitely sneaking. Yeah. So it's cool. That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. I'd say maybe even, even in the comic book world, one of the best representatives of uh, an ambush predator would actually be Batman. Right? I mean, he's called the Dark Knight for a reason. And although he's trained in martial arts from across the globe, his ideal scenario is to kind of stay perched above, yeah. watch the criminals panic below, and just swoop down and snatch him up. Mm. And so you'll see that in a lot of the films. The scenes are set up. It's almost kind of like a horror trope where the criminals shaking and the guns clattering. And, you know, <laughs> out of nowhere, you just hear a whoosh of wind, and Batman yeah. swoops in and takes like action. the shadow of the and cape. Yeah, and he's back <laughs> out again, and he's perched and ready to go. Yeah. So, That's awesome. He's yeah. got his deep, raspy voices. Yeah. <laughs> you got the Christopher Nolan yeah. kind of. I'm Batman. Yeah. <laughs> Cool. Oh, man. <laughs> um, so let's switch gears a little bit. Yeah. All right. So, you know, so coloration is, you know, obviously it can be you. It has you know, a diverse set of uses as a weapon. But obviously there are sort of much more straightforward weapons, right? Sort of brute force weapons. And I know you think really deeply about these <laughs> about these kind of weapons. So we're going to move on to the next character that, that sort of really showcases, I think, a few of these kind of brute force weapons. And that is Hellboy. 
So Aaron, you want to give us a little background on, on this character? This might not be as well known as a character <laughs> as like the X-Men. <laughs> yeah, has anybody <laughs> actually <laughs> heard of Hellboy? Yeah, a couple. Yeah, so we got, we'll see okay. it, right? Yeah. He's representing. Look at the films, probably. <laughs> so he's a character that was developed in the early 90s. Uh, this writer, creator, artist, Mike Mignola, basically uh, drafted the first uh, issue of it alongside um, one of his co-creators. But uh, essentially, Hellboy is kind of your average working class Joe. He's a blue collar guy. Um, Red collar. You know, guy. he's uh, <laughs> the quintessential everyman, but he's like the spawn of a demon, essentially. Yeah. And the story goes back in kind of late German allied forces wartime era. Hitler's panicking and he decides to turn to the paranormal world to find a solution uh, to bring home victory for the Third Reich. Makes sense. Right. And so, of course, in the comic book world, uh, he reaches out to another kind of mystical character that's, you know, based loosely on a real life person, Rasputin from Russia, that, that Rasputin, um, who kind of practices the mystic arts and essentially reaches out to him and says, you know, we need to do something. We're losing the war. I need you to create a, the ultimate weapon to help turn this around for our favor. So they get to work. They kind of have a whole setup. They open an interdimensional portal, uh, essentially kind of breaching a gap for the gates of hell to kind of come through to the natural world because, you know, you got to win at any cost, right? And uh, the allied forces discover what's going on and they kind of hop into battle, basically disrupt everything that's going on and shut down the process before things can really happen. But throughout that, uh, it gave a little bit of a window for something to sneak through. And that character was a small little boy at the time from kind of the hell dimension. Uh, who the Allied forces ended up finding after they chased off uh, kind of the Nazi regime. Uh, and they named him Hellboy. And they essentially raised him as one of their own. Uh, he was adopted by uh, kind of a professor slash priest named Professor Bloom. And from there, he kind of just brought him into the fold of the work that he was doing. And he worked for the, um, the Bureau of Paranormal Research and Defense, I believe, yeah. the BRPD, uh, a kind of a hidden sect of the FBI, yeah. uh, and from- Trump still funding that. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, to this day, they, uh, they fight all things paranormal, uh, kind of just mystical, anything that kind of has that sort of supernatural background to it. Um, and so Hellboy is a character, um, you know, he's kind of, He's just interesting. He's blue collar. He he likes cats. He likes Cuban cigars. He <laughs> likes eats food. A metric ton. So much yeah, he food. He pounds away like thousands of burgers in a single sitting. Uh, he's supernaturally strong. Um, he can heal fairly quickly, but he's not indestructible. So there's a lot of times in the films that have been out that he takes a lot of damage. He can get hurt. Um, but you know, essentially, he's he's a walking badass, yeah. uh, and he's most characterized by his horns, uh, which he kind of shaves down for appearance's sake. He's yeah. kind of, uh, you know, a, a little bit hesitant about that. He's, he's self-conscious self with that. Yeah. Uh, and then also he has a giant right arm. Yeah, the fist uh, of doom. Fist of doom, they call it. <laughs> and, you know, outside of being the quintessential everyman and kind of blue collar guy, he may or may not be the harbinger of doom and the apocalypse. Yeah. Uh, the, yeah. the story is if he uses his fist and unlocks the gate to hell, he can bring about the doom of all mankind. Yeah. 
but he doesn't believe that's him. So we all got secrets. It's all good. So. Yeah. <laughs> so and we're about to you know they're uh, gearing up for actually a reboot of uh, of Hellboy in the in the cinematic uh, universe, right? They are. They there's been a couple sites that have said there's a date, but it hasn't been confirmed by the company Lionsgate. So we'll we'll say there's no date for now. But um, essentially, if you guys are Stranger Things fans, uh, the actor that plays the cop that kind of watches out for Eleven, uh, David Harbour, I believe is his name, he's going to be the lead role now of Hellboy. Uh, so before it was Ron Perlman, who's been in things like Sons of Anarchy and all that, uh, but now it is going to be David taking on the title character. Yeah. So. Yeah, so let's see our man Hellboy in action here. So this clip we pulled from uh, the very first Hellboy movie from back in 2004, which was directed by uh, Guillermo del Toro and starred Ron Perlman as Hellboy himself. Uh, so Aaron, you want to give us a little bit of background here? Yeah. Um, so this film basically introduces us to the character of Hellboy and some of the supernatural villains that the character kind of encounters throughout um, the series. So Hellboy's team gets the call, and it kind of starts off <clears throat> actually uh, in a different uh, venue where they get called to this building um, to essentially deal with a, a supernatural threat, and they encounter this creature known as Samael. And he has essentially been kind of um, infused with this ability to um, regenerate and come back to life after it's killed. Samuel, I'm the resurrection. <laughs> Didn't I kill you already? And the crazy thing is, every time one version of the creature is killed, two more spawn to take its place. And that during sounds the time annoying. Yeah, it's just like super annoying, right? And it's especially <laughs> annoying if you don't really realize what's happening. And at this point in the movie, like he doesn't quite know what's going on. He's getting the sense that the creature can regenerate, but not, I think, at the degree um, to which it's happening. Uh, at most, he maybe thinks that the, the creature itself kind of came back to life. But in fact, he already killed it at least one time before. So there might be... Now that he's killed it again, I can't do the math, but something around like five or six, you know, potentially out there now because after one dies, two are generated or regenerated again. Yeah. So, um, yeah. you know, as a hero, he's um, kind of always conscious about his surroundings. And, uh, you know, I, I think his first thought uh, before anything is just one, keeping the innocents and the, the civilians safe to a certain degree. Uh, he has a soft spot for kittens, so he's even able to, with his his other hand, his his non fist of doom hand, cradle the kittens and uh, mid fight. The, yeah, mid fight and, and ward off the enemy with the other arm. So you know, it, it is kind of a, a test of uh, his endurance in terms of, of fighting ability and and punishment taking because the, the creature kind of packs quite the punch. Yeah, yeah it's like not the most graceful scene, but uh, but he gets the job done in the end. Yeah, a little bit of help from your, your neighborhood subway train is, is all you need sometimes. <laughs> exactly.
So, how, as you can see, like, so Hellboy is much more of like a straightforward bruiser, you know, and for Mystique, she was, even, you know, when she, you, she's handcuffed, you know, she's got a lot of skill, a lot of agility, you know, and, you know, Hellboy is much more clunky of a character, you know, he's basically a, 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 a human battering ram, more or less. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, when we're looking at Hellboy as a character, you know, obviously the two things that stick out are, you know, obviously that, that massive right hand of his and his horns. You know, so as a biologist, me looking at, at Hellboy, <clears throat> obviously I think immediately of other creatures that have these large, massive appendages. Yes. Yeah. So when we're looking at these sort of appendages where they pop up in the natural world, like what does that, what does that tell us about the organisms that possess them? I think there's a lot of parallels here, actually. So now I'm much more in my comfort zone yeah. with this guy, <laughs> even though I'd actually never heard of him before this. But I, there's actually three things that stand out. And the first one, for me, that caught me off guard was the color. So before mm -hmm. we get to the weapons, give me 10 seconds yeah, to talk about yeah. the color. So we talked about Mystique and the context in which you would blend. So your, camo your weapon would be camouflage in one way or another, but there's another biological context where colors make a really big difference. And that's not hiding or blending, it's actually as a signal. And it's usually a signal that is geared towards other individuals of your same species, and it's about quality. And there are a lot of sexually selected or mating systems where males are competing to attract females, or males are literally competing with each other to fight for females. And in either context, there's value in being able to advertise if you're a really dominant, really high condition, really well-fed individual. And so you find this general rule that brighter is better. And there's a lot of studies in birds and other systems that show that, the, in this case, pigments, that it's hard to get access to the pigments and only the best conditioned individuals get enough of them to be able to produce really bright skin. So he is red. Red is a very common carotenoid pigment that exists in lots of, as you know, lots mm -hmm. of animal systems. And in that context, it's a signal of quality. You'd expect high quality males to be brighter than poorer quality males. So if I had to guess the biology here, he was plucked out of his system and sort of thrust into ours. But if you try to imagine what was going on in the natural environment that he would have been sort of adapted to, presumably there would have been lots of male competition, just like you see in so many animals. It probably would have involved signaling. So fiddler crabs, there's a picture here, have a very oversized claw. We can talk about the cost and what that means in a second. But it's also a signal. And the males wave that as a way to advertise their fighting ability to rival males. And also females pay attention too. And the fiddler crab claw is really bright. Bright colors signal quality also. So I, I can't escape the red. It's like Hellboy <laughs> probably would have had really big weapons. And he would have been really bright. And there would have been lots of variation among males. And the really dominant, best conditioned individuals would have been the brightest red mm -hmm. with the biggest weapons. Yeah. So my sense is you took a dominant individual before he was born or when he was young, plucked mm -hmm. him out, threw him in our world. But that's what those traits say to me, is that that's what they were for. The really big weapons and the really bright red. Yeah. So. And you mentioned something about the costs, too. Yeah. So you mentioned, I didn't know this until you mentioned this. He has, the guy has to eat a lot, I take oh, it. Oh, yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. Well, so if we talk about the fiddler crab here, the fiddler crab pays a huge cost. First of all, that claw is huge and it's packed with muscle. And so muscle is metabolically very expensive. All tissues aren't equal and muscles have tons of mitochondria and they burn an awful lot of energy. So muscles are expensive. So that male has a ton of muscle in that claw that he has to maintain. So his all else being equal, he needs more calories per day than a female of comparable size mm. does just because of the weapon. 
But these crabs feed with the other little, that little itty bitty claw. They feed with the front claws. So a female has two claws. She can shovel the food in her mouth twice as fast as the male because one of his claws is useless for feeding. So he's got twice the caloric demand and half of the feeding appendages to eat yeah. with. So that male pays a really steep price. And implication is with Hellboy. Yeah, sure. Not only is he growing horns, which we'll get to in a minute, yeah. horns are also very expensive, but he keeps shaving them off, mm -hmm. which implies that they keep growing, exactly. yep. which means he's essentially growing his weapons over and over and over and over again. And so that's probably expensive. So between the big claw, whatever you want to call that, yeah. the hand the of doom, doom yeah. and the horns, that guy's burning some serious calories. Yeah. And maintaining the bright color too is yeah. expensive. All those things are expensive. So I guess he eats a lot of hamburgers. Yeah, he could, he's got good reason to, to <laughs> throw back hundreds of But again, I mean, that's cool. I, I, I come in from the outside, I didn't really expect the people, the writers of Marvel, to pay attention to biology. There's no reason coming in a priori you would assume that it would behave according to the rules of animal systems, but to an astonishing degree, it really does. Here. Yeah, it's yeah. cool. Yeah, so, so I'm you, pleasantly surprised. Yeah. So, so you mentioned a little bit about the horns. Like yeah. obviously, you know, when you think about you know, horns yeah. and that's what and, I think about and antlers. Like, yeah, this is like deep in your wheelhouse now. Yeah, so yeah. tell us, do these evolve under the same sort of circumstances as as like as like the fiddler crabs are? Absolutely. Okay. So in in these types of systems you get sort of an alignment of the stars of conditions where there are usually resources that are really limiting and if males can guard access to those resources when females come to feed on them they get access to the females or in some of these systems the females cluster together in groups already so a male that can guard access to that group of females has access to them and can keep rival males away so you find sort of ecological contexts where everything comes down to the fight the other detail that I've spent a lot of time thinking about is you tend to find fights that end up as sort of one-on-one -on -one duels. I think that's a really important piece to the puzzle. Mm. But either way, when you get that right cocktail of conditions, then these aren't just scrambles and they're not really acrobatic. They're fights of strength. Mm. It's sort of the rivals line up toe-to-toe -to -toe and they push and they pry. And these types of fights tend to escalate through a very rigid sort of ritualized sequence of stages. They start out with sort of sizing each other up then they spar a little bit. And then if they're still evenly matched, they throw down and get into a really serious fight. But most encounters sort of start a little bit and back down again before they ever go anywhere because the, the smaller male can figure it out. And so that's got to be the context here. And that's where you see a lot of these weapons arising. There are systems where males that can afford to produce a bigger weapon win the fights. And the bigger the weapons get, the more expensive they get, the more honest they are as a signal. They're expensive, so you can't fake it. If you're a poor quality male, you can't cheat and produce a really big weapon. It's too expensive. So the bigger the weapons get, the more they start to function as a signal, a deterrent. And simply having that weapon is enough to sort of stop other opponents in their tracks and only pretty evenly sized rivals will actually throw down and get into a big fight. So, so there's a fairly common circumstance that applies in lots and lots of these systems. Mm -hmm. And I'm willing to bet it would apply in the Hellboy system, at yeah. least in his native planet, yeah. if you will. Well, uh, I mean, I think that most of the times when we see Hellboy fight, it's, it's typ he's typically in these one-on-one -on -one scenarios. Like, so now that I think about it, I mean, there's a lot of characters, if you think of like Superman or, um, you know, even like the Hulk, right? You know, they can fight, you know, it, you know, 
a lot, lots of individuals at once. You see them like go through scenes where I remember like the Hulk in the Avengers, where he's just like mowing down aliens as they're, you know, as they're traversing New York City, just <laughs> plowing them down one after the other. He doesn't really care, you know. But um, you know, but Hellboy, he does have a tendency. I think even in the comic books to be in these sort of one-on-one cool. situations. Well, yeah. I, oh, go ahead. Sorry. Oh, and I was just gonna say, I think it kind of relates back to what you were saying about how. Uh, you know, when, when males or whoever it is are squaring off against each other and sizing each other up, um, ultimately kind of equally matched uh, competitors go into full-blown battle. And when you look at a character like Hellboy, he's kind of backed up by the BRPD, that, um, that kind of government function we talked about. And there's some other characters, uh, as well as agents that form up that group. And they'll go out on missions together to sort of look for trouble that's out there and reports that they're getting in again like about like abnormal activity and so on and so forth. But when they show up and things get really heated, obviously some of the agents are looking around and when the big, big, big bad comes by, Hellboy steps in because yeah. he also knows that's, cool. that's his role and he's yeah. the one that's suited and fit yeah. to take on that one-on-one battle. And he always insists on being and, alone. And he insists situations. on fighting yeah, alone too. Yeah. So Wow, that totally fits. And I kept thinking, why would he cut the horns off, right? Why yeah. did they go and do that? But he just wants if to you fit can, in, Doug. Well, yeah. consider that he's <laughs> just not wants to be his, a normal guy. <laughs> he's not in his normal environment. So yeah, he's not sure. facing off against rivals of his species. Yeah. That would be the kind of context where you'd really want the weapons. That's the Strategic. kinds of fights that would be really ritualized where you'd use the weapons, mm-hmm. and that's where you'd need the signal the most. So he's sort of by himself. There's really no reason to keep him, mm-hmm. yeah. but he still that's has the fighting ability. He still fights one-on-one, lines up toe-to-toe exactly as he would have done. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Interesting. Yeah. Surprising parallels. You, you got yeah. me on that. So I think we have time for, for maybe one more example, right? And okay. so obviously everything that we're talking about, you know, we're talking about animal weapons. Obviously this has a tendency to bring us back, thinking about ourselves as humans, right? And, you know, our own sort of weapons races and the advancement of technology, you know, in getting bigger and bigger to fight, you know, bigger foes, be they real foes or theoretical foes, <laughs> right? And obviously, so when I'm thinking about this sort of arms race, obviously the character that comes to mind is, is Batman because he's, you know, he's a normal, like Bruce Wayne is a normal guy. You know, he's a really big guy. He's like 6'2", 240 pounds, like, you know, lifts weights and, you know, does all that sort of stuff. And obviously he's got a ton of money, you know, but at the end of the day, he's still biologically speaking, a regular guy. And yet, you know, he goes up against these ridiculous enemies, and even goes toe to toe with Superman. Like so, we all remember, um, you know, Batman versus Superman uh, came out in 2016. For better or worse, we remember Batman versus Superman. <laughs> um, and you know, this is sort of this hallmark face-off that's happened over and over and over again throughout, um, you know, throughout the history of of DC Comics. Um, you want to tell us a little bit more about that, Aaron? Yeah, I mean, they've fought over a dozen times and on the surface it would seem like it should be a a pretty quick and easy match right superman has all the abilities all the power but uh, as far as the comic books keep tally on and even with the movie and the films uh it's pretty evenly matched and superman has maybe bested batman one or two more times than batman has kind of bested superman uh and a lot of this goes into batman as a character in terms of who he is as a person, being prepared and researching and always thinking about worst case scenarios and having something ready um, to sort of be there in case something happens. Because, you know, I I think in a lot of Doug's work, if you read his book, it's about 
um, with the animals, there, there's always kind of a reason. It's like, what's, what's the reason that these conflicts occur? Like, what's, what's the background story there? Uh, and, and same with Batman and Superman, because on the surface, it wouldn't appear that there should be a reason. They're both heroic. Superman stands for truth, justice, in the American way. Batman, you know, mostly looks out for Gotham, but cares about people as well. They're both on the same side. They often team up in the Justice League to take care of problems together. But there have been instances where they've squared off for one reason or another. Um, you know, we can talk about a, a couple of different instances in the comic book world where it's happened. Um, like back in the 1980s, one of the quintessential sort of issues of its time that really kind of made comic books feel a little bit more mature in their storytelling was called The Dark Knight Returns. Mm -hmm. uh, and it was written by Frank Miller. And the story kind of set place in the future where Batman was kind of in his late 50s, kind of almost early 60s. Superman was a character that had kind of ultimately come down to becoming uh, kind of like a government puppet almost. So he was still working for America, but he was very much controlled by the president at that time. Uh, and essentially there was a kind of a cataclysmic event where this uh, kind of shockwave went off across America, knocked out all of the power and all of the functionality of the cities across the states. Uh, and basically descended society into chaos. And every city you looked, there was massive rioting and looting and all of that, except for in Gotham, uh, where Batman was there and he was kind of keeping holding law and order, yeah. holding it down. And the president at the time was feeling kind of embarrassed by that because Batman was doing something that he couldn't do for the people. And he essentially sent Superman out to handle uh, the situation. And so that was the impetus for the uh, conflict there at that point. Yeah, so, and that's actually, you know, it's that storyline that they actually co-opted for one of the most epic fight scenes in, uh, in Batman versus Superman. Um, so let's actually take, let's take a look at, uh, at the epic face-off between <laughs> the Bat and the Man of Steel. So this scene we pull from uh, Batman versus Superman, Dawn of Justice, uh, which came out in 2016. Uh, so Aaron, you want to set the stage for us here? Like, what's happening in this scene? Yeah, a whole lot happened to get us here. And, <laughs> um, you know, Batman versus Superman wasn't everyone's favorite film. But I think it did do a good job of setting up the situation, hypothetically, of why these two titans of comics would ever come to blows in the first place. Um, because you think on the surface they don't have a lot to fight about, but uh, you know it really kind of points to at the end of the day some of the genius behind Lex Luthor as a villain in particular, because he's never going to be the character um, without the help of like some sort of uh, an extra exoskeleton suit or something to that nature to like go toe to toe with either Batman or Superman in a battle of pure physicality but working behind the scenes uh and sort of uh, undermining uh, a sense of trust and confidence and um you know just um faith that these heroes might have in one another in terms of being on common ground and pursuing the similar ideals uh that that's where it truly shines yeah and you know coupled with batman uh, AKA Bruce Wayne's initial suspicions at the beginning of the film and then distrust uh, of Superman after seeing the fallout from uh, the battle between uh, him and some of the visitors from Krypton and the effect and toll it took on the city of Gotham. 
uh, it just took a little bit more to kind of put him over the edge and feel as though he needed to um, kind of contain Superman before uh, the threat became unmanageable for the entire world. So here we are. It's raining. Saturday night, pitch black. (laughs) And these two gods are basically descending and, and ready for battle. true to form is trying to think as many steps ahead as he possibly can mm-hmm. uh, before the battle actually commences because he has a lot of stuff set up for Superman, right? Yeah. And, uh, you know, and he's he's pretty ready to go. I mean, Batman seems very vigilant and set in his ways. And it seems like going into the scene, you know, Superman's actually trying to trying to apologize for the for the misunderstanding. But Batman doesn't doesn't want to hear any of it. Bruce, please. I was wrong. You have to listen to me. Yeah, I mean, it starts off with um, Superman definitely kind of taking the the higher ground, and I I think he maybe realizes a little bit more to an extent of of what may be happening, and he's trying to explain his position. But at the same time, you can tell that Batman is really uh, digging his heels in for the battle because he realizes that, uh, you know, he's only got one precise moment and shot an opportunity to catch Superman off guard uh, before things escalate beyond his control to contain. And so he's really just past the point of talking and ready for action on his terms. And you see that in some of the tactics and things that he uses with the automatic kind of machine guns, sonic cannons, and of course the weaponized aerosol kryptonite and, and other um things that he basically launches at Superman to even the playing field. Breathe it in. That's fear. You're not brave. Men are brave. Yeah. So even though he's, you know, biologically speaking, you know, much weaker character he uses tactics and technology to to get the upper hand absolutely yeah so in that clip i mean basically you see batman with all of these uh kind of encounters with superman he's always looking for ways to essentially neutralize the weapons advantage um and so whether that's supersonic weaponry or like kryptonite uh kind of missile launchers or uh you know in one instance in the comics he used solar panels to mimic krypton's red sun which essentially negates his abilities entirely uh he's even gone as far as using outside help uh in one issue where he uh, kind of fell under mind control from poison ivy super uh, batman actually worked with catwoman to essentially throw lois lane off of a building to kind of snap him out of it and kind of come to the rescue to save her uh and and that worked out uh so (laughs) (laughs) lois lane didn't die uh, but there's all these instances where uh, essentially Batman is looking for ways to kind of get the upper hand. Um, I, I mean, I'm not sure how you cl- categorize it. Maybe not by sneaky means, but... I don't know either. I've been trying to think of that. But you know what keeps coming to my mind is that there's a number of people that have argued that humanity's greatest weapon is its intellect. Mm, it's basically sure. our minds. And 
if you think about that, then it makes sense that these storylines, if there's all these superheroes that have these extra powers, that there would be a character that outthinks them, that, that is able to use conventional weapons or conventional tools, although they're sort of modern and not quite conventional. But you know what I mean, mm -hmm. normal sort of play by the rules of the universe type tools to play on the same level. Because it's interesting, you make me think of Iron Man and Captain America too. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Same sort of idea. But it's, it's not lost on me that it's incredibly expensive for them to pull that off. Sure. Right? So there's a difference with biology. Mm -hmm. Usually the dominant individuals have all the resources. They're the rich ones. And it's the sneaky ones without resources that are breaking the rules. Here, the message, if you want to call it that, is that these, these humans who are simply human, who are playing in that league, are billionaires. Yeah. <laughs> Essentially, it takes a lot of money to have that kind of technology, to be able to do that kind of research, and to be able to sort of ante into that kind yeah. of game. But yeah. they're able to do it. And that, I think, is probably important symbolically, I would be willing to bet. That yeah. it's I think possible that would be for my... humans to, to overcome these things, too. I don't know. Yeah. So would you, would you say that <clears throat> sort of the evolution of like human battle, like when you look at you know wars and like arms races in in the human world, does it actually does it play by the same rules as as the animal world? Yes, it does. And it, how important is money too, right? It's, <laughs> it is well. So I mean, it depends on where you go. So mm -hmm. that's a situation where the dominant tactics, the conventional weapons, will be ridiculously expensive, mm -hmm. and usually only a very small number of nation states can afford to sort of play at that level. Superpowers, if you think back to the Cold War. But all those systems have cheaters too. But it's the right. it's the biological kind of cheater where it's the individuals that don't have the resources to play at the same level. They they're not the billionaires. Mm. Those are the ones that are cheating. But we we call it asymmetric warfare. But I mean guerrilla tactics, tactics have been back for mm -hmm. they've been there for thousands of years. If you can't afford to play by the rules, don't play by the rules. You break the rules and you cheat. Mm. And so we see cheating all the time. So you've got the very expensive conventional tactics that do play by very stereotype rules, I would argue. And then you've got the cheaters that are sort of breaking those rules. Awesome. Tons of parallels. Yeah. Do yeah, we have thanks. time for a Q&A? Yeah, so I think we have, um, we have time to probably take maybe two, two or so questions, uh, is, if anybody has any, any questions for, for anyone up here. It's, if someone doesn't have a question, it's not a question. But mm -hmm. <laughs> hey, I've loved this. Thank you so much for this. I think it could have been like so much longer. Maybe you definitely have enough content to fill. More time if you could really like dig into it kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, but I've been I've grown up with like my kind of holy trinity of comics was uh, X Men, Daredevil, and the Punisher. Oh, cool. And since I was very little, I've thought of Beast and Nightcrawler and Mystique because they're all blue. And since yeah. I was very very little, just wondering like is there a reasoning behind why that would be like a strange color that a lot of mutants end up mutating towards? So it's really amazing to have some basis for that. Yeah. Um, but also when I was uh, very young, one of the first things that fascinated me about the Punisher, who's a character that kind of tells that line of like being the, just a biologically a normal human and has to kind of cheat or work out or like have a really high pain tolerance or whatever it may be. Right. Um, and who I'd actually argue is a better tactician than Batman. Mm. Um, Controversial. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Trying to start fights in here. Yeah. One thing about the Punisher is he generally wears all black except for the skull piece on his chest, which is a huge advantage in like the dark or something where that's where he has the most reinforcement in terms of armor. And it makes me think of like, I think there must be insects that have, you know, things like that that sort of like, people often shoot at the Punisher's chest piece because in the dark or in the midst of panic, they think that's his head or they, that's the only part of them that they can see or that's his skull or whatever it may be. And then he sh they shoot him there and he's totally invulnerable and he's able to get him otherwise. And 
There are awesome examples in the insect world now that you mention it. So there's a whole group of butterflies that have fake heads sort of on the hind wings. I wish I'd planned and, and had slides. So, so that if you look at the butterfly when it sits on a perch, it's got its body, but its body is sort of hidden by the stripes and the color patterns, all of which focus your eye to the end of the hind wing, which is essentially expendable tissue. And there even are usually little, little sort of fake antennae and little colored eye spots. So if you're a bird and you zoom in for the head, it misdirects you so that you grab an expendable, you take a little chunk out of the hind wing and the butterfly flies away. It works beautifully. My favorite example of this is the peanut bugs. They're a relative of cicadas. They're called fulgorids. They live in the tropics. But, but these insects have three lines of defense. Number one, they hide. So that when they rest, they're cryptic. So it, they're active at night. In the daytime, they hunker down and hide. But if you poke them like a bird might, they pull their cryptic wings away like this. And then they've got huge, bright eye spots on the hind wings. So they have a startle response. That's plan B. So if you get found and they poke, you whip their, up your forewings and you've got these huge, massive eye spots that startle the predator. And then their third line of defense is what you're talking about. They've got, they're called peanut bugs because they have this big, brittle shell on the front of their head that looks kind of like a peanut. But if you look at the coloring, it looks like a head. It looks like a little tiny crocodile or caiman head. It's got teeth and it's got eyes and little eyebrows and nostrils. It looks like a fake head. So if a bird punches in and grabs for the head, it shatters and this animal can fly away. It's a one-off, they can only do it once. They've got one decoy head. But once, and, and it, but it will save their life. It's like their, their get out of jail free card. Because if a predator goes for the head, it's a fake head, it shatters and their real head is tucked away and they can, and they can survive. Isn't that cool? So you hit it on the nose. Insects definitely do that. That's good. Yeah. It's like it, it seems like that that extra head is it's like their uh, their like green C. mushroom for for uh, from uh, Mario, right? It's like you get a one up. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> Everybody gets one. <laughs> cool. Well, so. I think that's um. That's like most of our time. Yeah. Um, this was fun. Thank you. Yeah. This is like so great having you here. Um, so I want to thank, you know, thank you so much, Doug Inland, for being here with us, uh, talking about the evolution of battle in the comic book universe. Um, obviously, we also have um, very special thanks. You know, we're so, so glad that we could be a part of the International Wildlife Film Festival. Um, special thanks to, um, to the producer, Jerry Rafter, uh, festival coordinator, uh, Lana Waxman, um, Stephen Kell, who's our session contact, uh, Aaron Roos, our technical director. Um, this would not have been possible without uh, any of them. Uh, and obviously, if you guys are interested in, um, you know, in hearing more of the Biology of Superheroes podcast, uh, follow us on Twitter uh, at SuperBioPodcast. Uh, rate us on uh, on iTunes, uh, subscribe on iTunes, follow us on our Facebook page uh, at the Biology of Superheroes podcast. Yeah. Yeah. Anything else you want to add? No, I think that about wraps <laughs> it up. That's fun. I don't know why I got so nervous. That was a blast. Thank you. Thanks again for tuning in to the Biology of Superheroes podcast. In our next episode, we'll continue our discussion of Jurassic Park, uh, which we picked up in episode four. I know we've been teasing this episode for a while, but I promise it's actually coming this time. So we sit down with developmental biologist Dr. Evan Kingsley, and we talk about the methods that are being used to understand the life of dinosaurs beyond their bones, even what dinosaurs may have sounded like. So with that, thanks again, and stay curious.